0: Revelation 16. Let's turn there and look at that text together. In Revelation chapter 15, the the temple of God was opened and out of it came this living creature and gave to the seven angels seven bowls of God's wrath to be poured out. So we begin in verse 1 of chapter 16 to see that unfold. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat. And they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. The people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the day for the battle on the great day Of God the Almighty behold I'm coming like a thief blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on that they may not go about naked and be seen exposed and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came from the temple from the throne saying it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones about one hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Let's pray. Lord, this is a, a, a stunning, awful passage that we read. And it will seem to some unfair, it will seem to some... Uh, harsh Uh, father we need uh, your perspective to see this and understand it as we should and we pray for that we thank you that while this day is coming it's not here yet so father while we are in this day of grace we pray that grace would be poured out on anyone today who's never trusted in Jesus the one who takes wrath so we don't have to fear it And that we as your people, Lord, who have trusted in Christ, would be reminded today of that great grace and the urgency, Lord, that this passage communicates. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Perspective. Perspective. A point of view or a way to see something. All right. We all have different perspectives on on events and people and things that go on around us. Perspective is, is an attitude towards something, a way of regarding something. Let me illustrate perspective this way and see if it helps us understand a little bit about what we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 16. Um, when I was 11 years old, I remember distinctly what went on during the year of 1968 as um, as the Reverend Martin... Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated, and I remember when Senator Robert Kennedy was assassinated. I remember seeing him laying on the floor of that kitchen in that hotel with a busboy holding his head in his hands. It was on June 5th, 1968. He was former um, senator. He was a former, excuse me, a former attorney general who had served under his brother. And he was U.S. Senator, and most folks agree that he would have more than likely been the Democratic nominee for President of the United States that year. He had just won the California primary. And he was shot in the head there in that kitchen by a young man named Sirhan Sirhan. And he was 24 years old at the time, Sirhan Sirhan was. He was a Palestinian Christian who took, um, took great issue with the way that the Kennedys supported Israel. And that was the reason that he shot uh, Senator Kennedy. So I was reading this week a letter in the Wall Street Journal that was written by his youngest daughter, Rory Kennedy, who was still in her mother's womb when her father was killed. And she writes this. My father's murder was absolute, irreversible, a painful truth. That I have had to live with every day of my life. He was indeed taken forever. Because he was killed before I was born, it meant that I never had the chance to see my father's face. I never had the chance for him to see mine. He never tossed me in the air, never taught me to ride a bicycle, never dropped me off at my freshman dorm, never walked me down the aisle. At the time of the trial, Sir Sirhan, she's still riding was moved to to plead guilty to murder in the first degree. Yet, in the decades that have followed, she writes, right up until last week, he has not been willing to accept responsibility for his act and has shown little remorse. At his previous parole hearing in 2016, when the commissioner asked him to explain how he was involved in the murder, Mr. Sirhan replied, I was there. I supposedly shot a gun. The commissioner kept pressing, I'm asking you to tell me what you believe you're responsible for. Mr. Sirhan replied, it's a good question. Legally speaking, I am not guilty of anything. She goes on, it is true that Mr. Sirhan has been incarcerated for a long time, for 53 years to be exact. That is, after all, an easy number for me to track. It's the same number of years that my father has been dead. It is the age that I turn on my birthday this year. The decision to release Mr. Sirhan still has to be reviewed by the full parole board and then by California's governor. I ask them for my family and I believe for our country too to please reject this recommendation and keep Sirhan Sirhan in prison. Her letter and her position is agreed to by nine other Kennedy children, two have said that they support the recommendation of the parole board that Sirhan Sirhan be paroled. Now it's still up to the to the governor and still up to others in the in the city in the state there of California. But if we understand her perspective that her father was taken, that her father was killed in cold blood, premeditated. It's easy for us to understand her perspective that I don't want that man released. I don't think that's the best thing to do. I don't think that's the just thing to do. That perspective helps us understand, right? Well, without God's perspective, and without understanding the travesty of what has been done against a good and gracious God, we will not understand Revelation chapter 16. It will seem harsh. It will seem more awful than it should be. And unless we see the heinous reality of the crime of our sin against the backdrop of God's holiness and his character, his goodness and his kindness, unless we see sin that way, then we will see the consequence of that sin as unfair, unjust, overkill, if you will. James Hamilton's a pastor. He's written a commentary on, a, on Revelation that I've, I've used and I appreciate it. I think he helps us understand this perspective, God's perspective. Listen to what he says. God makes this pristine world where everything is good. He gives humans everything they need for life and happiness. And he only gives one command. They break it and then start devising ways to be more offensive and abominable. They start stealing and boasting and murdering and fornicating and their thoughts are only evil all the time. Now consider that God is a just God. He is holy and righteous and good and he is personally offended by our sin. Imagine how much sin there is in the world to offend God. We are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Over the last seven days, consider your life and consider how many seconds... You have done that. And how many you have not. When we are not walking by faith, he says, and loving God, we are sinning. Now multiply all your personal sin by 7,900,000,000. That's the number of people alive today. And then multiply that heap of transgressions by 6,000 years. Does God have a right to be offended at the sin of humanity? Not only did he give us in this perfect dome of life everything we need, but then when, he, when, we, when we rebelled, he put in place a gospel plan to save rebels. So when we understand this perspective, then I think it helps me and us better understand that this wrath that we see poured out in Revelation 16 is punishment that fits the crime. It fits the crime. And what we see in Revelation 16 and we'll see in the following few chapters is that God is glorified in his wrath, church. No one in heaven backs away from it. No one in heaven tries to turn our attention away from it. It is made light of because in it God is glorified. It is not made light of, brother. It is magnified. The highlight is on it. And we see how the righteous are called to respond to this wrath, in contrast to how a hardened heart responds. And also in this passage, kind of hidden down there at the bottom, we see the deception of the enemy, even in the light of this wrath, and this promise, this blessing that comes to those who are alert and pay attention. Rebellion against God is futile, it is foolish. We will see that in this passage. We'll see it in the passages that follow. So let's start. Verse 1. I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Let's make no mistake about where this voice comes from. There may be some discussion about whose voice it is. But this voice comes from the temple. It comes from the throne room of God. It comes from the center of the universe, as we saw back in Revelation chapter 4, right? This is at the center of all of reality and God is at the center of this judgment that is being poured out. It comes from him. It always has. It always will. It came from the throne room of God when the scroll was handed to the lamb and the seals were unbroken and one by one, those seals announced judgment that came from God. It came from the throne room of God with the trumpets and the judgments that were announced with them. And it comes from the throne room of God with these bowls that are being handed out. These probably these large ceremonial bowls that were part of worship. It's bigger than a cup. There's more to it than that. And it told us earlier over in chapter 15 that this this living creature gave to the seven bowls full of the wrath of God. Now there's a difference between these bowls and the trumpets. There's a difference even between the bowls and the seals that we've seen before. These these trumpets that we saw earlier were limited in their effect, right? A third of of the ocean, a third of the fresh water, a third of the sun, moon and stars were darkened. That's not the case now. It's total. What we saw earlier was that it seems that there was an opportunity to repent. Now some would say there seems to be an opportunity to repent here because of the calls uh, because of the fact that it tells us no one did but at least at the end of this the time for repentance is over. You had that chance earlier but not now. Third, there's nothing like this in the bowl in the trumpets and in the scroll. Nothing. Nothing equals what we see here. This is the last. Because with them the judgment of God is finished, it tells us. So this sound. Isaiah heard this same thing in Isaiah chapter 66. The sound of an uproar from the city. A sound from the temple. The sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. This won't be quiet. This won't be hidden. This won't be behind some curtain where nobody can see it. Okay? So church... One day the redeemed will stand there and glorify God for this wrath being poured out. It is, it is for us as God's people to recognize His holiness and His majesty and to worship Him for it. Okay, We're not embarrassed by this church. We should not be. And we're called to share the gospel story. So that under the conviction brought about by the Holy Spirit, that lost, regenerate, hardened heart that we see pictured here, will recognize that grace and mercy of God and fear that wrath. First bowl. First angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its, its image. That should remind us of the plagues. All of this will remind us of the plagues. This was the sixth plague in Exodus chapter 9. It might even remind us of the, the sores that Job had, which... Job, Job tells us they were loathsome sores from the bottom of his feet to the crown of his head. And the word there carries the idea of a boil. Okay, That's, that's the idea, an ulcer is what the, the Greek word means. And, and these, are, these are just disgusting. They're disgusting. They're bleeding. They're running sores. And, and the point that we need to see here is a choice was made and the consequences are now... Present. These are those who worship the beast and those who bear the mark of the beast and worship its image. A choice was made and there are consequences here. The second angel poured out his bowl, it says in verse 3, into the sea. And it became like the blood of a corpse. The blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea with the trumpet. A third of the ocean was impacted here it 's complete it 's total and it 's not just turned into blood it 's turned into the blood of a corpse and 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 what commentators agree that that means is that this is this is coagulated it is it is thick it is probably black it is sticky it, it It's just hard to, I can't imagine what this is. And what I can't even imagine beyond that is that it's covering 70% of the earth. It's the seas, it's the oceans. And so the great majority of the mass of the earth, of, of what covers the earth, has been turned into this coagulated mess. And everything in the seas dies. Everything dies. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, I was reading this week on their website, says that there are 228,450 known species of life in the ocean. And then it goes on to say there are as many as two million more that are a total mystery. A total mystery. Scientists estimate that 91% of the ocean species have yet to be classified because 80% of our oceans are still unmapped and uncharted. So we have no idea what's down there in over 80% of it. But what we're told here is that, well, it will all be dead. And you know what? I remember this from science class. When the oceans die, humanity dies. Because 50% of our oxygen comes from the ocean. And the oceans process more CO2 than all of the plants on the earth. Humanity cannot survive without the oceans. When the oceans die, so do humanity. Bowl number three. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water. And they became blood. So think through the consequences here. Think through the process. There's no fresh water to wash the bodies that are suffering so badly. There's no fresh water to drink. As your body is suffering from this physical ailment that has come. Looking ahead to what's coming when the sun scorches humanity. There's no water to cool ourselves. One commentator said the scene will be so unimaginably horrible that people will wonder how a God of compassion, mercy and grace could send such a judgment. People wonder that now, don't we? When we see tsunamis or when we see... Earthquakes or when we see things happening around us that seem to just stretch us, we go, what is up with that? How is it? How is a a good God allowing that to happen? Philosophers, biblical philosophers and and secular philosophers call this a theodicy, meaning how do we explain how do we deal with the issue of evil in light of God's goodness? And I think Revelation 16 helps us understand. It gives us a perspective that helps us get a grasp on this reality. In fact, the angels here shed light on the issue. This is as it should be, the angel says. It is what they deserve. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments. They have shed the blood of saints and of prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And then there's this sound that comes from the altar. Back in Revelation chapter 6, I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. That's heaven's perspective. That's a biblical response to what we see going on. Not just here in Revelation 16, but understanding some ways the whole picture of what's going on around us. This this helps me understand this response that comes from the angel. This is right. Listen, this is right because of who does it. And this is right because of why it's done. This is right because of who does it. Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. Don't miss that little phrase there, who is and who was. Previously in Revelation and in other places, He is the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. He's come. Okay? He has come. There's no more is to come. Because He has arrived. And He has, and He is just. The word there is diakios. It's, it's the word where we get righteous, where we get, He is the one who is as He ought to be. And because God is, As he ought to be, he does what he ought to do, period, every time. That's who he is. Genesis 18, it's a simple phrase. We've heard it probably in the context of all kinds of different things that we see in the scripture. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right or do what is just? And yes, God's answer to Abraham was yes, I will do what is just. I will do what is right. And here we see him doing that. You have brought about these judgments, is what the angel says. So church, here's why it's so important for us to be grounded in Christ and growing in his word. Because apart from that knowledge of God and who he is, we will not have the perspective and the understanding that we need to even discern what's going on in the world around us. We'll let the world be our teacher. We'll let secular opinions shape our opinions. Our understanding of right and wrong will be directed by political platforms instead of by the eternal word of God based on the character of God. And so with that perspective, with that understanding that God is just, he is right in all that he does, the judge of all the earth will do what is proper and what is just. He is our standard of truth. He is our standard of right and wrong. His word gives us that. This is right because of who you are, God. And this is right because of why it's being done. Look at verse 6. They have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. In Revelation chapter 6, those martyrs under the throne who had given their life blood for their faith cried out, How long, O God, before before you avenge our death? And here the answer comes. This is punishment that fits the crime. And we don't always see it now. I understand that. It's hard to discern sometimes. I understand that. But we will. That's what this timeless, eternal perspective gives us. What will happen in the end will ultimately line up with God's character, even if it doesn't make sense now. I don't know how often it does not make sense, right? Right? It just doesn't. But God is never out of control. He is never arbitrary. He is never fickled. He is never inconsistent. He's not manic. He is not erratic. What he does is right. He is the standard. And and the angels and the saints agree with that. We need that perspective. Alright? Let's look ahead. What comes next? Bowl number four turn my page here bowl number four the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire i've thought about this a lot this week no not just because it cooled off praise god for that amen man i'm telling you what this mountain boy does not like the summertime you'd think i'd be used to it by now but uh, here's here's what i've been thinking about first we have the ocean's then we have the fresh water. Then we have this, this picture of, of, of light and darkness. And here we have this picture of, of the sun being, in some ways, having this impact upon people on the earth. Here's what I want you to think about, and I'll give you this as an application God gives us so many common graces, does he not? He gives us so much common grace. But God will one day use those means of common grace as a means of judgment. We should be thankful for it today. We should praise him every day for it. He gives life in so many extraordinary, kind ways, physically and spiritually. But if and when humanity continues to turn against him, those means of grace will become means of judgment. I believe he does that even today in certain ways. But it will be done here in a way that's never been seen before. Again, a fourth trumpet, the, the, the darkness of the sun, a third of the sun was darkened. But I'm not exactly sure what's going on here. And commentators differ and disagree on exactly what, what happens here with the sun. You know, are locations changed? Are the clouds removed? How is it that all of a sudden the sun becomes not this means of life, but this instrument of death? instrument of misery i don't know how that happens but the effect is crystal clear this searing heat will scorch in such a way that it'll seem like the atmosphere is on fire as one commentator said and people are miserable i was thinking about this this week back in june this little small town of Lytton, up in british columbia bc up in the north you know there they're in the far northwest up in british columbia I think about it being this place cool, you know. I think about Glenn and Heidi and, and this beautiful part of the, the, the world over there in British Columbia. This little town of Lighton in B.C. set a temperature record of 121 on June the 29th. A few days later, most of the city was destroyed by a wildfire. Now, we think about those kinds of temperatures in places like Death Valley, right? Death Valley still holds the record for the world's hottest temperature back in 1913, 134 degrees. The whole world will be Death Valley. And we don't know how it happens. But what is clearly seen here is that this scorching does not impact the sin-hardened heart. It's almost unbelievable. They were scorched by the fierce, fierce heat. And notice what it says there. And they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The response of the unredeemed. I was thinking about this week when we've been there 10,000 years bright, shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And as I was kind of singing that in my mind this morning early, these words came to my mind when they've been there 10,000 years suffering as if on the sun, their hearts are still hard. They revile with their tongues. God's glory forever. They shun. It's total opposite. When 10,000 days are up, the suffering has just begun. And even on this earth, in the light of this judgment that's coming, hell will bring no change on an unrepentant heart. We need to understand that's part of the reality of hell. Oh, it seems to be so cruel that God will punish those. But here's the deal. The hardness of the heart increases as time increases, it seems. And the longer they're there, the more they deserve it. And here is just a preview. Preview. The heart that's hard stays hard in the heat. I've seen that so many times and many of you have too. The calamities of life, the tragedies of life, the storms of life come. Oh yes, and there are times when they are used and God works and moves and a heart responds and softens. But you have also seen it, I think, as I have. That that hard heart stays hard in the heat of that moment. Bowl number five, fifth angel, darkness comes on the dark kingdom. This is this is kind of interesting, kind of paradoxical to me. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Now, remember that through Christ, through faith in Christ, we are transferred, translated, depend on your 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 translation out of the kingdom of darkness into the son of into the kingdom of the son of his beloved. Okay, so we're moved out of darkness into light, but here darkness literally comes on the dark kingdom. People gnawed their tongues in anguish, and in verse 11, and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So again, like the ninth plague in Exodus chapter 10, plunged into total darkness, it says. Jesus says this will happen. In Mark chapter 13, in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Now, again, the specifics aren't clear. We're not told. Is this physical darkness? Is this emotional darkness? Is this spiritual darkness? Is this economic darkness? Environmental darkness? Is it political darkness? I think it's a combination of all of them, most likely. We're plunged into darkness. And again, the results are clear, even if we're not sure how it's all going to unfold. There's miserable lives gnawing at their tongue. That's just a deep-seated agony. Miserable lives. Profane words. They curse the God of heaven for their pain and for their sores. When, when a hardened heart should be crying out for mercy, it's not. It's, it's cursing. It's blaspheming. And it's an unrepentant heart. They do not repent of their deeds. I'll talk more about repentance in just a second. I'll talk more about it being a gift. But the days of gifts are over here, it seems. The sixth bowl. Look at verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare a way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, Three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs. They go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the almighty. And then there's a parenthesis here. Okay, it seems that there's this parenthesis. John breaks away from describing what he sees with this word for the church, this word for the redeemed. The parenthesis there in verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen as and be seen exposed. Parenthesis is over back to verse 16. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So once again, do not lose sight of the fact, church, that God is in control. And this bowl has been called an unholy exodus by one commentator. It's an unholy exodus in that what we saw happening in the exodus as they came to the sea and it was divided and the redeemed walked through it. Here we see the sea being dried up so that the kings of the east can come to this great battle. So this unholy exodus is taking place. The Euphrates River is the border on the northern end of the promised land. And it's from there that John sees these armies being Put together these kings coming and there's deception here and there's deception from what I've called already the false trinity. All right. Do you see it there? The deception that comes. From this false trinity, if you will, from the mouth of the dragon, the mouth of the beast, and the mouth of the false prophet. This false trinity that comes with a false gospel, that comes with false promises, that comes speaking these untruths and trying to assemble this, this regime, if you will. There's false signs and wonders, false miracles being done. Amazing things that we saw earlier being done. And all of this is for the point of deception. To deceive these kings To convince them as if they really need to be convinced. It seems there that there's not a whole lot of convincing going on in my mind. They're ready to line up with this beast. And what comes out of this dragon and this beast and this false prophet is demonic. It's lies. It's deception. What comes out of them is defiling. It's called unclean. What comes out from them is is disgusting. Susie, what's your impression of frogs? Ugh. Ugh. That's Susan's response to frogs, okay? So, I've thought about you the whole time (laughs) I'm telling you, baby. I know you won't be there. Praise God, right? You'd be grossed out. Because it's disgusting. And it's deceptive. These, These signs that deceive and convince these kings of the world to align themselves and they're assembled. That's a passive tense, by the way. That verb says they are assembled. Passive tense. They just... I kind of just just follow along and show up. I don't know what they think they're going to do. And I don't believe they know who they're in for a fight with. I really don't. At least not. I'm just not sure they do. But they are going to be assembled, as we'll see later on in Revelation, at this place called Armageddon. And you know what? It won't be much of a fight. Now, God is orchestrating all of this. And these characters are showing up with knives and swords to an atomic God. You see that? There'll be no fight to it. No fight. They come with swords. And then we're given this this final warning and there's this blessing here to us. Church to the redeemed. It's a I believe it's another call for endurance. It's a call for us to be alert. It's a call for us to be ready. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians five, let no one deceive you with empty words. Three times, John points out that from the mouth, from the mouth of the dragon, from the mouth of the beast, from the mouth of the false prophets. Words matter, church. Words matter. And those words must be judged based on the word. So they come with these deceptive words. Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Don't be partners with them, Paul says. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in what is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part of the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, he says. In Colossians 3, he says something very similar in verse 5. Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, with which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. One bowl at a time. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we should not be surprised by this. Don't sleep through it, he says. So that's the warning for us. That's the promise of blessing to us. Look at this seventh bowl finally. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. So this, this it's not going really any place in particular. It's just poured out. And a loud voice came out of the temple and from the, run, from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Verse 20 is kind of a summary of the whole deal that we see unfolding here. Every island fled away and no mountains were, were to be found. And then in verse 21, great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, for the plague was so severe Pour it out into the air so that just as the air is comprehensive and everywhere, this calamity will be too. Okay, I think that's what we see here. And it's not going to be like anything that's ever been seen. And God lets us know this is the end. It is done. This is the end of it. And some have said that this is an earthquake that impacts, you know, maybe Jerusalem or some city there. I don't I don't hold that view. I think this is very clearly to me, God's judgment on Babylon, the city of man that we've seen contrasted all the way through. And what we see unfolding before us here in Revelation 17 and 18 are the details of what's going to happen to this city of man. As opposed to what we will see at the end of Revelation in 20 and 21 of the city of God. One's eternal and one's not. One's beautiful and one's not. We'll see that contrast. And this cosmic demonstration of power and glory makes what happened on the mountaintop of Sinai in Exodus look like a little sprinkler. I mean, it. it there's look at how it's described. Flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake such as has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. It's this demonstration of power and glory. And should there be an opportunity to repent, who would not? Well, clearly these will not. There's no response there that indicates any softness of heart. There's never been an earthquake lighted. This city was split into three parts, and I think that's a symbolic picture, if you will, of what we're going to see unfolding as Babylon falls in chapters 18 and 19. And it says these large hailstones produce devastation. They crush people. They bring devastation, and they crush everything except the hard heart of the unredeemed. It can't be broken. It can't be broken. It's just astounding. I don't think there's any opportunity for repentance at the end here. I think that's what it means. It is done. But, church, we are not there yet. And I hope we understand. We need to understand. Repentance, it's an action on the part of those who come to faith, but repentance is a gift. It is a gift. Scripture makes this clear. They were marveling at what was going on among the Gentiles in Acts chapter 11. And the truth that was proclaimed there at the Jerusalem Council was to Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. God grants repentance that leads to life. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 2. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? God gives us his kindness to lead us to repentance. Paul says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That righteous judgment will be revealed, but now the gift and the opportunity is to repent and come to faith, turn from our sin. That gift of repentance is a gift offered to the redeemed as well, right It's an encouragement to us. It's a challenge to us. It's an invitation to us to constantly be cleansed under the blood of Christ. And if we'll confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. Repentance is a gift from God. But there comes a time where there are no more gifts. One commentator put it this way. And it was was just a stark statement to me. One last time they shake their fist in God's face and curse his name. Judgment day has come and the results are certain. And he writes, the response of humanity is stunning. So great is their hatred of God. They curse his name with their final dying breath. So great is that hatred for God. They curse his name with their final dying breath. What do we do with this? Well, the first application is pretty clear. Repentance and faith while there's still time. Again, can I just remind you of God's perspective on this? That we're, our God is holy and just and he cannot overlook the crime of high treason. And that's what sin is. It's treason against our gracious and good God. And he, and he cannot and he will not overlook it. He will not just say, oh, it's okay that you rebelled. But instead, what he did, which is so stunning to us, it should never take. I mean, we should never lose our grasp on this amazing grace church is that he sent his son. He sent his son to be the wrath bearer for us. We rebelled. We hated God. The gospel writers tell us and Paul tells us that we're at enmity with God. We're his enemies and what what we deserve is what we see in Revelation 16. And what we are offered is the gift of the cross and the gift of his son. It's amazing. It's grace. Peter said that he died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust That he might bring us to God. The only one who is just died for those who are unjust. And because of that, justice is satisfied. And if we'll repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ and trust in him, we fear not Revelation 16. Amen? We're not afraid of this. Because we're not guilty in God's eyes, we bear the righteousness of Christ. God is just. He'll not violate his law. He'll not violate his standard. He'll not violate his very own character. And our salvation is evidence of that. He is just and he is loving. He's gracious and he is good. He is holy and he is merciful. And all those things meet perfectly in Christ. And all those gifts are yours through faith in him. Repent and trust in Jesus. Secondly, being alert to the enemy's deception And being compassionate for those that are so deceived. I hope we've been thinking about that. The mouth of the, what comes out of the mouth of of Satan. What comes out of the mouth of the dragon. What comes out of the mouth of the false prophet. What comes out of, even what can be seen with our eyes that could deceive us. We live in a dark world, church, and folks around us are darkened. Their hearts are darkened to the reality of who Christ is. And we're called to pray for them because only as God opens the eyes of their hearts can they begin to see. We can't do that. But we can pray for God to do that. And as he does that, as their ears are softened, as their hearts are somehow softened, then we speak those words of life into that life. We share the gospel. We present Jesus in our lifestyle, but it must be more than just how we live. Most Mormons are way more godly than a lot of us. At least in their lifestyle. But they have no gospel. They have no truth. And how will they believe if they don't hear? And how will they hear if no one is sent to preach and we are sent to preach, to share the gospel? Alertness to the deception and compassionate for those that are received. And then finally, just a third thing. Just thanksgiving and praise for the gifts of grace. I thought about that this week. Thankful for fresh water. Thankful for the ocean. Thankful for the air I breathe and for the sun that does warm us and for the shade that cools us. And thankful for these common gifts of grace that are poured out on every human. And just living in the reality that those means of grace will one day become a means of judgment. How sweet and awful. Is our God, sweet in His grace and awful in His wrath. And in Christ, in Christ, we are safe, we are secure, and we are sent. Let's pray. Father, I pray that our hearts would be humbled and broken. By the reality of not just what we see in Revelation 16. Turn our eyes on Jesus and focus us on the cross, I pray, Lord. That the just wrath that was deserved and is deserved by sinful rebels was poured out on Jesus on the cross. And that by grace through faith as we trust in him, Lord, we are given that salvation. We are given that security. We are given that right standing with you. Condemnation is removed and judgment has been set aside. Fill our hearts with praise and thanksgiving for that truth. Fill our hearts with compassion and urgency for those around us that still need to come to faith in Jesus. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.